it is typically less expensive to develop a solid test method than it is to develop a drug substance manufacturing process or to go through and manufacture bunches of batches of drug products. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Welcome again to CMC Live. FDA regulations and guidance simplified through examination, real-life experiences, and risk-based device. So this, this podcast, again, hopes to educate sponsors and individuals on agency-related CMC matters. It's not intended to be prescriptive advice, but rather interpretation that's right for you. So today, we have on this episode, we have Coleman Byrne, live from King of Prussia, PA, near the mall, I think. And it's actually going to be a rare treat for me, as I have known Coleman for, I think, about 16 years now very knowledgeable analytical person. He's our most senior analytical services expert here at DSI, and he's technically proficient in all aspects of analytical service. So welcome, Coleman. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right. So we're talking analytical here today. So manufacturing and drug development is pretty important, and there's usually unique challenges that you're not aware of if you're not in analytical to ensure the product quality and safety. Analytical testing provides the data needed to produce safe and effective drugs, and the development and validation of these methods is crucial in drug development, and we'll talk about some of that and why. So first question, how did you become an analytical chemist, Coleman? I found out how colors work, and back in college, I was listening and in the lectures, and they were very specifically showing how various different electronic transitions cause different colors. And I said, Ooh, this is fascinating. <laughs> and so I decided, all right, that's what I wanted to do. And so I got involved, got my degree in physical chemistry, and uh, then started off working in lab and doing testing and just expanded through small molecules into peptides, biomolecules, and all sorts of other different styles and types of products and techniques, each of which has their own different series of challenges analytically. So it's been a a, a gradual and continual learning experience and continuing, which always is enjoyable because I just like finding out new stuff. Okay, so what else makes it enjoyable? Like, what do you like about being an analytical chemist right now? Well, it's it's always like a little bit of a detective work. Like, initially, you're starting off, you're trying to find the best way of answering a problem, getting an unknown piece of information that serves us to solve a puzzle. And the puzzle is the product, what it's supposed to be, is the levels of impurities as low as they need to be. What are the impurities? Is the product being manufactured properly and is it going to be safe? So there's always little challenges in terms of how you design the series of tests that are appropriate for any particular product, how you make sure that the tests are working appropriately so that you can trust the results. And that's what it really comes down to is, do you trust the data? And can you support that when you bring your data along to the agencies to uh, get approval for your product? Okay. 
So I think some folks would say if we talk to our API colleagues, you know, and the process is the backbone for drug development and drug product side, the same thing, but it does go across both areas, uh, analytical development. So obviously very important. So in your career, you know, you've seen methodologies, uh, method development, you've seen good stuff and, you know, it done the right way. You've seen things done improperly. Overall, can you talk about maybe some of the challenges overall in analytical method development and validation? One of the difficulties is that when you're starting off with a molecule, you know relatively little about it. And over the course of a development project, as you go further and further through pre-IND to phase one, phase three, and eventually into a commercialization, you're constantly learning more and more about the molecule and about what can happen to it under different circumstances. And so you have to adapt your analytical methodology to establish at any given time what the molecule is and add to the, uh, the knowledge that you've previously generated. And so when you're starting off, you know a little bit about the chemistry of the molecule. You work with the synthetic chemists that develop it to understand what impurities can potentially be present in there. And you try to develop a method that will separate out the known molecule from its known synthesis impurities. And if you've got availability of those impurities, you can challenge the methods to establish that separation and to show that you can resolve them and quantitate them. Frequently, however, you don't have access to every little impurity that can potentially be generated. And so you are relying on trying to use analogs. You use degraded samples that you sometimes manufacture deliberately, either through stress stability studies or chemical degradation. And you try to establish the potential impurities that you can have within a product that can potentially develop and then show that your methods can quantitate them, that they can resolve them, that you can measure the levels of the impurities consistently and accurately. And that's always the challenge because quite frequently, impurities and degradants tend to be very similar to the parent compound, and you can sometimes have difficulties in separating them sometimes have difficulties in knowing that they are actually there. And there are various different techniques that you can use to do that. Quick question then based on that. So now to put mm -hmm. your consulting hat on a bit here, a lot of times sponsors may not truly understand that. And this is discovered rather late and work has to go back and redo or additional work that they hadn't planned for. How do you distinguish when that work has to be done? If it's not been done originally, how do you distinguish if it's, if it's, you know, characterization of impurities? How do you make that line of demarcation where they have to do it and you're going to recommend strongly, or perhaps that is something that they can continue to work on down the road to further characterize their product? What it typically would recommend is that by the time a sponsor gets to an IND phase, they have a test method that has been what I would call qualified, meaning that it has been sufficiently developed that they know that they can separate the primary product from some of its known degradants, that there has been some forced degradation work done to show that if you expose the chemical or the drug product to 
certain stress that are likely to occur in the real storage of the product, whether it's temperature stress, whether it's exposure to chemicals as part of a synthesis process, that you're not getting additional degradants. And if you do get those degradants, that your method can resolve. At that stage, you have confidence that there is no major surprises that you're going to see when you start doing your manufacturing for your initial clinical studies and doing the stability testing that shows that your clinical supplies are going to continue to be acceptable for use throughout the uh, the life of the uh, the product. Now, during those stability studies, because they will typically be done on multiple batches with multiple sets of tests over different periods of time, then you're going to potentially see things that you didn't understand or you didn't know could be problems initially when you were doing your development work. And so at that point, you may sometimes have to go back, reevaluate, re-optimize the test method. And at that stage, once you have confidence that you've established the vast majority of potential issues that you're going to see, then you go through and you do the full validation of the, uh, the test method. And that would t- the validation would typically be done during a phase two, pre-phase three timeframe, so that when you get to phase three and you're generating your registration stability and your pivotal stability test data that's going to support your shelf life and your finished product when you go to commercialization, then that is done with a method that is known to be sound, that is known to give reliable and consistent results, and that gives you the confidence that you can trust your stability data and any projections of shelf life that you make from that. I wanted to go back to the challenges. One of the things I I remember uh, mostly kind of being a little bit involved with analytical from the regulatory side, oftentimes development timelines are compressed for whatever reasons, right? In a lot of instances, actually, not enough considerations given to the, the method development and the validation plan. So with that, I have kind of like a three-part question, and you answered a little bit of, I think, all three of them. First one is, how would you recommend, actually, analytical method development? How would you recommend it to be incorporated into long development timeline for drug candidates, right? Where would that come in in the plan? The second question is, and I think we get this often, is, you know, can methods be changed midstream? What are some of the pitfalls and where in some instances is it probably necessary? And then the third part of it, I think you answered a little, what is, uh, at what point should methods be validated? And I, I believe you mentioned somewhere end of phase two, but how about, can you talk a little bit if you remember all this, breakthrough designation programs, right? When you're not a, a traditional uh, drug development program, when things are going a little faster and CMC needs to catch up. So with that, can you talk a little bit about timelines? Are methods ever, you know, maybe a holdup or a bottleneck? They can certainly be pulled-ups or bottlenecks, but again, it's a matter of looking at the potential early on and trying to get the best method that you can as early as possible. It is typically less expensive to develop a solid test method than it is to develop a drug substance manufacturing process or to go through and manufacture bunches of batches of drug product. And so 
it is really a question of trying to spend the appropriate resources at the appropriate time. The suggestion, again, is that you establish a scientifically sound test method by the time you get to the IND stage. And that should, where possible, be based on quantitation of the compound and its impurities against the standards. Ideally, standards that are made from the primary known degradants and impurities but if those impurities are not known, which is quite frequently uh, the case in the early stages of development, then work during phase one and phase two should be focusing on establishing the identity of significant impurities and degradants and establishing standards for those so that by the time you come to phase three and you're doing your validation in preparation for testing your phase three samples, then you will have known standards of known impurities that you can quantitate your samples against, and you can establish response factors to allow you to get accurate results for your impurities during your phase three. Uh, so that is roughly when things should occur, but each project is different. And sometimes resources are more plentiful and compounds are more easily and readily available so that you can, at an early stage, isolate and characterize and identify impurities that allow you, by the time you're in pre-IND or phase one, to have standards of your impurities that you can quantitate and you can develop the method very heavily and front load the development so that you can almost validate the method in phase one. And that is certainly appropriate if you can do that. There are other times that you are only identifying that a particular degradant occurs during your phase three stability study samples. And sometimes it is necessary to isolate a degradant that you haven't seen in the early development, but over longer term stability studies, you start to see it occur at levels which are high enough to be significant. You may not have data from your early stage toxicology to show that that particular material is appropriately safe, depending on the what it actually is, because you may not have, have known it at the time. And so as a result, Sometimes in phase three, you're left with a situation where you've got a new impurity that develops and you've got to basically go ahead and identify it and modify your test procedure at a late stage such as that. So going back to that question I had, the second part of it, you know, can methods be changed midstream? Mm -hmm. You kind of touched on it, you know, the reasons why you see some stability. Mm -hmm issues, maybe the process is scaled up and you see some variances. Can you talk about changing methods midstream? Yeah, it's very common to have to change the test method midstream because you sometimes find out things that you just didn't know previously. And in that sort of circumstance, you can always do a supplemental validation of an existing procedure to 
expand it. You may have to change some of the conditions that uh, you use in order to quantitate a new impurity, or you may have to generate an alternate test method that is looking specifically for a new degradant or a new impurity that comes up from a process change or from stability. So some cases you can modify an existing method, other cases you're adding new methods. If you're modifying an existing method, then you obviously have to evaluate how that method may, how a change to that method may have affected the results that you've generated previously. And you can quite frequently do that through a paper exercise, evaluating what the effect of the change would be on the other components. And if you find that change is negligible, then you don't need to make any changes to the, uh, the data and you don't need to, to update the data. However, Sometimes you find that a more significant change is required. And a typical case might be if a test procedure was initially developed where impurities are quantitated based on the relative amounts of them, the impurities calculated based on the area percent of a chromatographic response. And this is a common way that early stage methods are developed before standards are available. However, by the time you're getting to think about filing and think about a method that's going to be suitable for commercial production, the regulatory authorities don't really approve of methods that are area percent based because different impurities can respond differently to the different detection methods that are used. And so even though you may have a series of little small peaks that all appear to be the same intensity, if one is a low responder, the other is a strong responder uh, based on the detection method, then you can be either underestimating the low responder or overestimating the high responder and think that you've got different amounts of your impurities present than you actually do. And when you are trying to evaluate those impurities to determine based on your available toxicology data, based on whether they're metabolites or not, based on how what levels you're seeing in your clinical studies that can help you show that the overall product is safe, unless you have a true understanding of the actual levels of an impurity, then you're making decisions based on inaccurate information. So the agencies will typically look for a method that is based on quantitation against standard, either a qualified standard of each individual impurity, or in situations where that's not possible to have. Sometimes you can just have so many impurities that having standards for all of them becomes impractical. In that situation, establishing that you can understand and know the relative response factors of the different impurities compared to the, uh, the primary component, you can then use a conversion factor for each impurity within your test method. And that situation frequently occurs where 
a method that was developed in uh, pre-IND and qualified as an area percent method and used perhaps for phase one, phase two clinical studies, all of a sudden you now come along and you have to convert that over to a, uh, a method which is based on quantitation against standards or weight percent method. And if you're doing that, you will sometimes find that the apparent levels of your impurities change suddenly in the middle of your stability study, primarily because you've changed from a less accurate quantitation procedure to a more accurate quantitation procedure. If that has to happen, you can, through a mathematical calculation, show that because you know how the response is changed, you can convert the area percent results to give a simulated weight percent or standard quantitative results and establish that uh, you've got a consistent response across your stability study. So, so that's a matter of essentially doing comparisons uh, between your original study data and your subsequent study data. So basically, for those folks that are listening in, when they're concerned about a change or an improvement to a method because of the impact of the stability data. What you're telling me then is that don't let that dissuade you from improving the method if you know it's flawed and needs to be further developed and refined because you can make, in, in most cases, some correspondence from the old data generated with the old method. Yes, and it's not necessary that the data is flawed because it may be uh, it generated appropriately but just quantitated without right. taking into account the appropriate uh, correction factors. Right. Uh, so it's just it's it's less accurate than the uh, than the subsequent data, but still can be made valid and can be used to make a better decision than would have been done a number of years previously at an earlier stage of development. Got it. Okay. So I think Brian has a question of how this data comes in and what you do, what you're doing, where you're validating and how it all fits into the regulatory submission part. So just my background, I, I had a couple questions um, kind of on the regulatory front, driving you know, how that interfaces mm -hmm. with analytics. So Coleman, can you talk a little bit about you know, the regulatory parameters that exist out there for analytical method development and validation for drug development? I'm talking maybe about the FDA guidances, the ICH guide, any guidance that the industry generally follows. You know, to perform analytical methodology. Can you talk to maybe some of that where to find well, it? Yeah, for the past 20, nearly 25 years, I would say uh, there have been a series of guidances promulgated by the ICH, I think it's the International Conference on Harmonization, which is USP, European Pharmacopeia, Japanese Pharmacopeia, and a number of uh, ancillary groups throughout the world, uh, which essentially look to standardize practices for all sorts of different areas within pharmaceutical development. And in the case of the analytical end of things, it looks at things such as stability, impurities, and uh, there is some of the earliest guidances that they issued were ones on the uh, validation of test methods. And so typically, you're looking at seven different parameters the first one and one of the more important ones is specificity, showing that you can, with a particular test procedure, separate out whatever you're looking to quantitate with that test method. 
some methodologies, you don't need to resolve impurities from the primary components. Others you do. And so in those particular methods, then the um, specificity is critical. You're next looking for linearity to show that you can have a consistent response over a known concentration range. Sometimes that range can be quite high in the order of thousands of, uh, of fold. More frequently, a few hundred fold is reasonable, but with some methods and some detection techniques, you're looking at ranges where you only have linearity over a tenfold range of concentrations. And those would typically be used in very specific circumstances for very specific types of products because you try to avoid those where possible. Subsequent to linearity, accuracy, showing that if you measure the response of a compound, that you don't have any interferences that will either enhance or inhibit that response that may be caused by the components in a drug product or some of the conditions that you are using in your drug substance analyses. Precision is the, uh, the next component that you're looking at, how reproducible your method is. That is also associated with how reproducible it is if you've got somebody else doing the analysis using different equipment or in a different lab, how comparable that is to your initial set of, uh, of data. And so that's called an intermediate precision. And those are, again, very important to allow you to understand how reliable the data that you are generating is so that you can make good decisions about it. And that's basically what the analysis is all about, getting data that will allow you to make good decisions. Finally, for compounds where you're looking at low levels of impurities or degradants or small compounds, you're sometimes looking at to see how sensitive the method is, and you're looking to see how little of a compound you can see the detection limit or how little you can actually measure accurately, which is usually slightly higher than the the minimum detectable level, and that's quantitation level. So those are other areas you look at for certain types of methods. And finally, the robustness of the method. What happens if something goes slightly wrong and the conditions change slightly? Can you still trust the data? And how far away from the true conditions can the method go before the data stops being reliable? And that just allows you to see what normal variability you can tolerate within a method. Uh, so those are the seven typical areas that you will look at within the analytical method validation. Those are all captured within the ICH guidelines and the FDA guidelines for that. Yeah, that's terrific. As you were talking, I had a flashback to my college analytical chemistry course, going through each one of them and having memories. Okay, so anyway, Brian, you had a question earlier. We didn't get to it yet before we started the podcast. Do you want to bring that one up right now? I think that was a good segue over to some of the next set of questions I had about you know review and what you're putting in a submission. Yeah, it was basically if you were to offer advice specific to a client in terms of the state of the methods, and I think you touched on it originally a while back as going into IND and what state the method needs to be in. We've had situations before where the method validation was inadequate or that we felt that it was, it was not sufficient for the filing being done. 
can you just at a, at a high level kind of go through that process of one identifying what makes that possibly inadequate and then two any kind of remediation steps that you've gone through in your career to kind of get that up to mm-hmm. par to support a submission yeah and typically areas which are inadequate will fall under some of the seven categories that I talked about a few minutes ago. Frequently, specificity is an issue where over time, even if a method was appropriately developed initially, if two years later in a stability study, you see a new impurity that was developed or that has started to occur or a new degradant that comes along, your original specificity may not be adequate and you may not be separating that impurity from some of the other impurities or from the active peak. So in that situation, you would be looking to change that method condition to improve that separation to give yourself more appropriate quantitation. In the situation where you make a change, you cause an impurity to be better resolved so that you can now reliably quantitate it. Any of the data you've generated previously on the other impurities is not necessarily affected by the change you've made in the method. And so it may not be necessary to go back and revalidate the method for those other impurities in areas such as determining their linearity, determining whether there's interferences as part of the accuracy, determining whether the method by which you are actually preparing the samples gives you repeatable results. If you are just changing the separation, the chromatography, then all you would need to do in terms of improving the method and showing that it is still giving you valid data would be to do a smaller supplemental validation, focusing perhaps only on the specificity and on some of the other changes that may have affected the original method. So sometimes you would look at a precision determination Sometimes you may look at monitoring your robustness to see what conditions may have changed that you may need to reevaluate. But you're not looking at necessarily having to fully validate a test method again because you've made a small change. You can make incremental changes. And the key thing then is when you go along to a filing that you can present all these incremental changes as part of a continuous improvement and you present your initial validation, you present a supplemental validation and had involvement in regulatory filings that have been successful and have come back from the agency without uh, without review questions where there have been two and three supplemental validations to establish better levels of confidence in your method and that have been the result of minor changes to methods that had taken place over a multi-year development phase. So it's possible to consistently improve the method, but the key is to establish valid reasons as to why it has to be done, document well as you're doing it, the steps behind the improvement, why something is changing, 
so that in three or five years time, you can look back and see, we changed this. This is the reason why. This is what we looked at that didn't work. This is how we got to where we are. That then it suggested that a certain supplemental validation would be required. We perform that validation and we present that data along with the original validation in your regulatory filing in a fashion that the regulators can understand and see that you have done the job that you're supposed to do well and that they have confidence that you know what you're doing and that the data that you're presenting is accurate and trustworthy. And that's what it's all about if you're an analytical person. Yeah. Okay. Brian, any following question or a supplemental question? That was a good one. No, no, I, I think it's good. I think what you described, Coleman, really is in line with the same thing the folks in the drug substance and drug product. I mean, you're telling that comprehensive development history, that story, but at the same time showing the, the, the efforts for continuous improvement. Because as many of our clients, they limited resources, in some cases, very, very minimal number of batches produced, limited opportunities to generate data, where you may have to look at even engineering batches and things like that to get as much data as you can. I think that's, that's really mm -hmm. important to note that don't be afraid of that supplemental validation or, or continual you know, characterization of the method to do mm -hmm. that, as long as you're moving the ball forward and you're, you're, you're showing continual yeah. refinement, that's really the story. That, that to, is a, just as appealing to the reviewer. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, you, you don't know and you can't know everything up front right away. You're always going to find more things out. Ideally, they're not going to be bad things that you have to do a lot to resolve, but uh, sometimes... That's what happens due to situations that are outside your control where sure. an API manufacturer has to change because one goes out of business or uh, a process needs to be modified or you have equipment issues or chromatographic column issues that you couldn't have predicted two years, three years previously when you were developing a method. So everything has to be potentially modifiable and the key is to try to consider upfront as much as possible and as reasonably as possible what could possibly need to change and develop the method as thoroughly as you can to start off with without making a PhD research project out of it because it has to be practical. It has to do what you need it to do in an early stage. But by focusing on doing things thoroughly early on, it saves time and money later on because you have a better understanding of the method. You're more likely to have identified potential pitfalls that may not be critical upfront, but which you at least know are out there so that you can adapt when you do have more resources and are in a later stage of development where those pitfalls may become more critical. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of typical culprits there in method, you know, development and validation. So I guess one question, you know, from a regulatory side, from my side here is the physiochemical properties of like a molecule, like I guess they play a huge role in method development, right? So can you talk to maybe some of that? For example, if a material is light sensitive or more moisture sensitive, you know, there's there's obviously different ways you have to go about looking at that thing versus other types of products. We worked on a program a long time ago that had no stability issues and was, you can run over it with a steamroller. Can you just talk about, you know, some of the, the physicochemical properties that might affect method development? Well, you mentioned light sensitivity there. There are certain 
compounds that we've worked with in which the sensitivity of the product to light was part of the mechanism by which they perform this function physiologically that they were supposed to. And so what made the product good for being useful as a potential medication uh, was something that meant that it becomes more difficult to work with from an analytical standpoint. In that situation, you're looking at needing to take whatever care you can to minimize the exposure of the product to light. And typically that's done through covering samples, through using dark glass containers, uh, low actinic glass or amber glass. Sometimes it's necessary to work in environments in which certain wavelengths of light are excluded through use of filters on the lights within the lab or very, very low light intensity areas where people are not necessarily stumbling around in the dark, but it's nearly that like people would have to uh, uh, go in and in some cases use like even use infrared headlamps to allow themselves to find their way around. So you can based on knowing the physiological property, sorry, the, the physical properties of the molecule, understand if something is light sensitive, then you know you need to take certain precautions. And that's the sort of things that you would typically try to work out in the early stages of development to figure out what sort of precautions you need to take so that when you do come to the point where you're starting to generate release and stability data on your clinical materials, that you can trust the data, that you know that it's not being affected by forces and circumstances that you're not controlling properly. Moisture sensitivity is another situation where a sample can pick up moisture, a standard can pick up moisture, and as a result, you're weighing a quantity of standard to use to quantitate a sample, and all of a sudden your assay is changed by, say, 5% because the standard concentration is not what it's actually supposed to be because it's got 5% of water in it because the standard was left sitting out. And that's the sort of circumstance where by understanding as you're going into a project what the physical parameters of the molecule are, you understand what you need to do, to, what precautions you need to take to avoid problems. Sometimes you only get that experience through sad experiences where things go wrong and you end up having to investigate and come up with preventive actions and corrective actions to stop what happened from happening again. And that's a learning experience and it's part of what causes methods to sometimes have to be modified and updated throughout the life of a project because you're finding out things you didn't know at the start. And as we pointed out before, that overall is a good thing. You try to minimize the frequency at which you have these unfortunate learning experiences, but sometimes they're unavoidable. And by focusing your development upfront and looking at the available information and the potential pitfalls, then you can minimize the possibility of having, as I call them, the unfortunate learning experiences, which 
sadly will cost time and money and cause potential delays. But by preparing adequately for them up front, you minimize those from happening. So looking at root causes, you know, and then also getting a thorough understanding of the physiochemical properties, et cetera, you know, that should always be done early on in the in the program, obviously. So back yes. to some validation questions and just review issues or issues that pop up, maybe let's say, for example, a breakthrough designation and you're entering a phase one or very early, whatever phase, and you don't have a validated method, right? And you need to use some data to, to make a critical decision. Can you share some examples, any history that you've had where you're using some data that, you know, from a non-validated method to make a critical decision, maybe some, you know, maybe a good story, maybe it's a chance you take, but, you know, maybe some other stories, maybe lessons learned. You always are at a point where you are making decisions based on available information and the quality of the information affects the riskiness of the decision. So like with nearly everything in pharmaceutical development, there's risk benefit analyses that you are doing all the time. And that is frequently a question of how much resources do you devote to resolving a specific problem at a particular stage in development when resources may be more or less plentiful. If you're in a circumstance where you have an expedited development process going along, then you will have a different balance to your risk benefit. Obviously, there has been a decision that there is a desire to have this particular molecule move forward through the development pathway as rapidly as possible because of the potential benefit that it adds. And so, you may be in a situation where instead of having 99.9% confidence that the approach that you're taking is correct, that the quality of the data you're generating is as good as it could be, you may only have 99 or 95% confidence. And you have to basically be looking to see based on the data that you've generated how much confidence you can truly have. And that's why, as I pointed out in earlier on, your attempt when you're going into a pre-IND and phase one type development of a method is to try to make sure that it is scientifically valid, that you are not expecting to have many, if any, surprises when you go into your later development. A validation of a test method should be a smooth process because you should expect that you know everything that could possibly have gone wrong and will have addressed those before you do the validation. The validation is ideally just a rubber stamp to show that you have done under control conditions all the work that's needed to show that your data is accurate and precise and linear, et cetera, et cetera. So there should not be any surprises. Does not mean that it doesn't happen, but if the method was well-developed, then it reduces the probability that something bad will happen during validation to close to zero, acceptably close to zero. If you're developing method like that, then even at the pre-IND and phase one stage, 
you should have good confidence that a method will eventually make it through a validation by the time you get there. So that in the event that you do end up having a compressed timeline and you're going straight from phase one into phase three, if the method's well enough developed and qualified well enough initially, then going into a phase three level validation and a commercial level validation becomes a simple step with a low probability of a failure and, uh, and of a problem that is going to need a corrective action, a supplemental validation, more resources and time, et cetera, needed just as you're about to try finalizing your clinical studies and getting ready for your filing in your expedited situation. So again, the key is to do the due diligence upfront, try to develop the method as thoroughly as possible with an, a view that it may eventually need to be made into a commercial method. So develop it as best possible with that in mind, while obviously working under the constraints that you do when you're in a um, early stage development process, when you may have more limited resources, uh, more limited time, and the focus is just on making material, releasing it, and getting it into the clinic. So you have to balance the priorities. You can never omit looking at what's in front of you, but if you consider continuously the end goal, then you can appropriately develop methods immediately and for the near future that can be easily used, validated, and or if necessary, adapted to the uh, more stringent needs that you have in phase three and uh, into commercial. And so that's where the challenge is, trying to do as much upfront where you don't necessarily know everything and you don't necessarily have all the resources that you might have at a later stage, uh, but still trying to prepare as best you can for the later stage so that you understand things better and you get better data as early as you can. Okay, perfect. Okay, so I, I think we have a few more questions, but we're running short on time for this podcast. So I do have two more serious questions. First one is, are the Finn Harps poised to make a run this year if they play? <laughs> well, they're they're already playing. I don't know about poised to make a run. They're always poised to make a run. They normally trip over their own ankles and fall flat on their faces, but we're always optimistic as a, as a Finn Harps fan. Uh, and for those of you out there that are not aware of who or what a Finn Harp is, it is a little small Irish soccer team, the bane and joy of my life over here in the United States, uh, source of great pride and great aggravation over 50 years. Ed has heard more about these guys over more beers than he probably cares to think about. But as I said, a, a, what keep me optimistic, there's always next year. It's always going to be better. Never mind we might have lost our last three games in the row. There's always next game. Stay positive. Yeah. So last other last question here. Are you a Spotify, Apple Music, or other? I'm old school. I like having my music available. I don't necessarily like the uh, the streaming, partly because the artists get paid so little out of it. 
but I uh, am increasingly like everybody being forced to go to streaming services. Uh, and so I'm, I'm using them. I tend to be a, more of a Spotify person because years and years ago, Apple took my extensive music collection when I tried to put it onto an Apple device and uh, tried rearranging it and seeing your precious electronic music files getting garbled right in front of you sort of as a a scary sight and uh, so i've been staying away from apple products ever since so i would be a spotify person <laughs> not a ringing endorsement for apple anyway i i have yeah, a, a, it was when i met you coleman i i think we were together at small biotech and you had some some sort of device with all this music i think it was pre-napster or right around that time i think you had more music than napster that was probably 16 years ago but i do remember you had pretty mm -hmm. much any you know, that ever existed on there. So that was pretty cool. So anyway, wrapping it up here, you know, analytical methods uh, that are scientifically sound, well understood and properly validated within that regulatory pathway, keeping that in mind are the basis for successful manufacturing and an ultimate regulatory approval as well as safe and effective drugs. Thanks again, Coleman, for joining us for uh, this podcast. And we appreciate all your, your thoughts. Take care. Thank you again. Take care. On the next podcast, we'll be speaking with Les Mintzmeyer, who has served as an advisor to emerging startup and established pharmaceutical companies here and prior. Les is currently our hands-on expert for managing and directing biologic contract manufacturing organizations. Prior to joining us here, Les has served as vice president, manufacturing operations, etc. at Jazz, Celator Pharmaceuticals, as well as of several CMOs, including Avid Bioservices and Lariat. We'll learn about what Les specifically did at these CMOs, some of the do's and don'ts, and we'll talk about specific pitfalls and some of his success stories. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.